All right. Good morning, everyone. I thank the Lord for bringing me back here again to talk about him. And I'm thankful to the Lord for Brother Jason who sent me a text some few weeks back and said, Brother, do you think you can come again? And it's always a wonderful thing when you come and talk about Jesus. And God's people want you to come and talk about the same Jesus. So I'm very, very thankful for an opportunity that the Lord grants me to come and talk about him. It's the highest privilege to come and attempt to speak for the eternal God who is on his throne doing whatever pleases him and one of the things that pleased him was to bring us to the knowledge of his son and to serve us and to bless us eternally with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. So this is no mean thing, this is the most wonderful thing to come down here and hear what the Lord has given me to share with you all. So I pray that the Lord will bless our spirits with the understanding of the gospel. And Sean and Katie said hi. <laughs> they could not make it for, they, they are out with some other commitments, but they do send their love to everyone. And with that, let's go before the Lord in prayer and ask for his blessing before we go to our text. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you again this morning. We honor you for your kind to us to grant us life in Christ Jesus. We pray and ask for your blessing as we go into your word. May you speak to your people, show them the truth of Christ, minister to all their spiritual needs, also asking for your blessing upon those of our brethren who are not feeling well. For one reason or another, Lord, we know you to be the great physician. May you help your people. And Lord, we pray also this morning for Brother Bill and Sister Diana in Indiana who are in grief, praying that you comfort them by your spirit. Be with them and us always. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, for our teaching this morning, we're going to be in the book of John, chapter 4. John, chapter 4. And we'll begin from verse 1. We'll read from verse 1 to 26. It's important that we read the text of Scripture because that's the foundation of truth we are going to preach from the text of Scripture. Verse 1, I'm reading from the New King James. John 4, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee, but he needed to go through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, said thus by the well, 
It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship Worship him, must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. That's the word of the Lord. And for our title, we actually have three titles. <laughs> we have three titles. Number one title is Go Call Your Husband. Go Call Your Husband. And number two, I Have No Husband. I Have No Husband. And number three related to that is A Date with Jesus. A Date with Jesus. And without further ado, we'll go into our text of scripture and develop the understanding of our message and by now, you may have noticed that I like to do my teaching verse by verse so that our understanding is based on God's word rather than the wisdom of men. And where we can't find gospel testimony, we have no business wasting our time there. And so with that, we'll go to verse 1 of John 4. Apostle John recorded and said, 
Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. So the Lord had been in Judea where I believe he had met Nicodemus in John chapter 3 and had given Nicodemus, if you still remember, a free theology lecture on the necessity of the new birth and said, you must be born again to see the kingdom of God. Of course, this had greatly shocked Nicodemus who may have thought as a Jew that salvation was given him, was already granted him by the mere fact that he was Jewish. But Jesus begged to differ and said, this new birth was necessary. One has to be born again and be born of God. And this new birth was not in the hands of man to do or to cause. It is like the wind that blows where it listeth, where it wills, such is one who is born of God, which means it cannot be controlled. It cannot be controlled by man, but is the sovereign work of God. God alone causes the spiritual birth. But after that discourse, and some other work of preaching and baptism, the Lord left Judea for Galilee. Because according to John, the Pharisees had heard that he was having a more successful ministry than that of John the Baptist. As if John and Jesus were two separate church denominations competing for space. John and Jesus were not competing for disciples. John was raised to point to Christ, to prepare the way of the Lord. But the point that I believe John is making is that the Pharisees felt more threatened with Jesus than they were with John. Because Jesus was gathering more people to himself. And if Jesus is gathering more people to himself, that would have spelled disaster to their own positions in the Jewish society. A matter which they confessed in John chapter 11 after the resurrection of Lazarus. They even did not like the idea that Jesus had resurrected Lazarus. They were offended for Lazarus being raised from the dead. Imagine people being angry that someone was raised from the dead. Such was and is the depravity of man. It bothered them that people were coming to Christ. And the gospel ministry, we call people to Christ. We don't preach to bring people to ourselves because we don't serve anyone. Our ministry is to point always to Christ Jesus. That's how things are supposed to be. But this is what happened in John 11, verse 47 and 48. 
John says, Then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered a council that is in the wake of the resurrection of Lazarus. And this is what they said. What shall we do? For this man works many signs. If we let him alone like this, everyone will believe him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and nation. If we let this Jesus to keep preaching, then all believe in him and that's bad <laughs> according to their way of thinking because they are there to protect their own positions of influence and power in the Jewish society. But John 4, going back to John chapter 4, verse 4 says, but he needed to go through Samaria. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. And what does that mean? Jesus had a divine necessity to pass through the land of Samaria, which I believe would not have been the normal route to use to get to Galilee. But he had a divine appointment there. He had someone that he had to meet. There was a scheduled meeting for him because all matter of salvation happens scheduled by God. There's no one who ups and comes to Christ by themselves. All matters of God and salvation are made of God's appointment. So Jesus had a divine appointment to pass through Samaria to meet with one of his. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, said thus by the well, it was about the sixth hour. So Jesus is now in Samaria. This is Gentile territory. And this, by Jewish thinking, would have been considered a pagan and unclean territory and people. Samaritans were a mixed race of people between the then northern ten tribes and the Assyrians. The Assyrians at one time had taken them into captivity, and so we had the Samaritans. So Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, being wearied from his journey, sat there by the well, so there was water in this place. How would Jesus even know to come to this place where there's water? He's coming to this world to set the stage for the conversation that follows. The woman has to come to the well at the appointed time. So she leaves her house. By God's doing, she did not come of her own accord. She doesn't know it, but Jesus knows. She has to leave everything aside, all the mopping, the vacuuming. She has to let go so that she may come to Christ, even though she doesn't know it yet. Verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. So a certain woman 
of the Samaritans came to fetch water and Jesus is there waiting and he says to her, give me a drink. That is a command. Give me a drink. That was Jesus' way of opening the conversation. Jesus, please say something nice about a girl's hair and nails or shoes or even ask her name. Jesus did not even ask her name. He just comes and says, give me what a drink. Sister Allison came and said to me, Brother James, do you want your water in a glass or in a bottle? She said, Brother James. Jesus comes and says, give me water to drink. They've never met before. Imagine going to a date <laughs> in your early days and starting your conversation with, give me some Pepsi or iced tea. And the girl will probably flip and say, oh no, <laughs> who are you anyway? I don't know you. And you may actually end up killing your chances of a good date. But not with Jesus. This is Jesus' ice breaker. Because this is the subject of his conversation. This is why he came. Verse 9. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And to that, John added a qualifying remark and said, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So the woman makes an observation. Mind you, Jesus is by himself. He had sent all the other disciples to buy food. How many people do you need to go buy food? The 12 of them. He sent them away. So he purposefully sent them away that he may have a one-to-one -one date with this Samaritan sister. Jesus knows a thing or two about dating too. It did not begin with us, but not in the physical sense. Not in the sensual sense of dating, but in the spiritual sense. But there was something about how Jesus was dressed or how he looked that gave him away as a Jew, which thing did not go unnoticed by this sister. And so she is in shock. She says, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? How is it even possible? That you being a Jew, you people look down upon us, the Samaritans, as half-breeds, as inferior, as unclean people, as heretics, would even consider getting water from a Samaritan person like me. And a woman for that matter. Because in this society, the Jews would not be, especially in the males, would not be talking to a woman like that. That's something that would have been taboo. And so Jesus is breaking a lot of rules here. So this is a very strange encounter. So much that John would say, for the Jews did not have any dealings with the Samaritans. Verse 10. 
Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink. You would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now that is a strange way to develop a conversation. Remember who is thirsty. It's Jesus. Jesus is he who came and asked for water to drink. How then does he turn around and tell the woman to ask him for living water? So Jesus is thirsty and yet he wants to give water to another person. He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Why don't you just drink that water yourself and don't ask me about fetching water for you? So, according to Jesus, there are two assumptions there. The woman did not know two things. He says she did not know the gift of God, who would be the Holy Spirit in the context of the text. And number two, she did not know the person of Christ, who is the giver of the Holy Spirit, because Jesus claims that he is the one who gives that living water. And we know that living water to be the picture of the Holy Spirit. So only Christ is the giver of the Holy Spirit. And that to say Jesus was more than an ordinary Jew who just happened to be at the well. Verse 11. The woman said to him, Say, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? The woman is confused. She looks at Jesus and sees no instrument or implement in his hands to use to draw water from the well, which she said was very deep. This well is very deep. It is unreachable without using some string and bucket to draw. So if you have nothing with which to draw, where then do you get this living water as opposed to the dead water that was in Jacob's well? There are two kinds of water here in view. Jesus says, my water is living and the water that you come and fetch every day is dead water. It does not have life in it. It is not flowing water because is in the well where water does not flow. Jesus brings living water that is life in it. So this is getting to be very interesting to this woman. And for a minute, she thinks Jesus is crazy. And this was a perfect setting because it was a subject that the woman would have been very familiar with. The fetching of water from the well was an exercise that women of the day used to do every single day. And she thinks she knows a thing or two about drawing water and could help Jesus with some sense. 
Because Jesus is not being sensible. How do you draw water from a well so deep without using anything? But the problem is, she and Jesus were not thinking at the same level, just as Nicodemus before her, who thought being born again meant being shoved back into his mother's belly. Yet Jesus meant a spiritual birth. The sister thinks about the whole matter in the physical, like many do when they read the Bible and they get confused. And some end up saying, well, the Bible has a lot of contradictions. No, it does not have any contradictions. Many are just reasoning the way of Nicodemus, the way of the Samaritan woman. They get too literal with the Bible and miss the point. The Bible is a spiritual book. It bears witness of the unseen realities of God and salvation. Okay? So it is a book that is understood spiritually. And without the Holy Spirit, we cannot understand what is being said. So Jesus, where do you get this living water from? that you are talking about, seeing that you have nothing in your hands, vest off. So, now the woman is thinking, she wants to figure out Jesus. Just as Nicodemus before tried to come and figure out Jesus. She says, okay, this is my starting point in my evaluation. Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank it and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? She is trying to figure out, place Jesus to some level where he may become familiar to her. And if you still remember, Nicodemus said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus thought Jesus was a good teacher come from God, like a lot of people say. I saw a short video of Elon Musk being asked about Christ, and he said, well, Jesus had a lot of very good things to say. In other words, He was just a very useful philosopher, but no more than that. And that's the thinking that Nicodemus brought to Jesus, and Jesus was not impressed by that. Okay, Jesus was not too kind with Nicodemus. And you see that if you have the red letter version of the Bible, in John chapter 3, the conversation with Nicodemus is mostly read. Jesus is doing the talking. He did not give Nicodemus even time to come up for air. (laughs) Okay? But with the Samaritan woman, Jesus has a laid-back approach with yet another sinner, a very worldly sinner. She's a worldly sinner. She's a girl of the world who is just minding a business and kicking it, whilst Nicodemus 
was a very religious person. He was a Pharisee. He was very rich. He was very powerful. And he was deceivingly very polite. And Jesus was able to see through all of that and say, oh, there's still no righteousness because of all these things that you are. But the side B of that, the Samaritan woman is the side B of Nicodemus. They both belong to Jesus, but they both have to come to the knowledge of who Christ is. And God is giving us side A and side B of how he finds his people. He finds some of his people being so religious and ignorant, and he finds some of his people just kicking it, and yet they both belong to him. Okay, let's keep going. But the Samaritan woman comes and says, well, if you are able to draw the kind of water that you are talking about, does that mean you are greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and even drank from it himself? In other words, what do you say of yourself? See that the woman refers to Jacob as our father Jacob. Why? Because the Samaritans, as I said, were descended from the northern lost tribes of Israel. So they intersected with the Jews when it came to the forefathers. Our father Jacob. Okay. And also, the Samaritans, because of that heritage, they held to the five books of the law, the Pentateuch. That's where you're going to find the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Unfortunately, those were the only books that they considered to be canon. And, and other books were heretical to them. So there is some connection between them and the Jews. Verse 18. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus indirectly affirms his superiority over Jacob. And if you want, even over the books of the law, and says, this is how you know I'm superior. If you drink this water from Jacob's well, you shall thirst again. That is a statement to say, I am superior by reason of the things that I give. Christ is superior to Muhammad by reason that Christ gives the Holy Spirit that Muhammad is not able to give. That's what Jesus is saying. And it is similar to the statement where Jesus spoke to the Jews about the law and manna and said this. Let's go to John 6. John 6, 47 to 49. Jesus said to the Jews, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. 
Jesus was here asserting his superiority over the law and says the provision of the law, which was manna, only lived to death is what happened to the fathers of the Jews. They ate the manna in the wilderness and they all perished. But the Jews had the same misunderstanding as Nicodemus had, as Sister Samaritan had, and responded this way in verse 52 in John 6. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> they were thinking the literal flesh. The Samaritan woman is thinking the literal water. Nicodemus is thinking the literal going back into his mother's belly. So that is the misunderstanding that they are having because of what Jesus is saying. And that is some offensive stuff to them because the Jesus of the Bible is very offensive. The very nature of Christ and his message of salvation by grace alone, by way of the cross, is an offensive message. And unless our gospel has the offense of Christ, we are not speaking for Christ and we do not believe his testimony. The Holy Spirit has not given us his truth when we are not talking about Jesus as the only way of salvation, the only righteousness. There's no other righteousness apart from what Christ accomplished. So the manna is the food that did not endure to eternal life and that giving us the testimony that the law does not save sinners. That was Jesus' point. The law does not save sinners because it gives the manna, and those that ate that manna died. The one who serves is superior to Moses. By that, Jesus is also claiming to be superior to Moses. And that means, to the law, Christ is superior to the law. And is also superior to all the fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because of John Chapter 1, verse 1 to 3. He is superior to the water that is in Jacob's well. How much superior? Verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah and it is the function of the Messiah to give the Holy Spirit to his people. There is no preacher or any person who gives another person the Holy Spirit. That is the function of Christ alone. Whoever drinks the water that Christ gives will find not temporary satisfaction, but a permanent one. Jesus says they shall never thirst again because that water shall be 
in him, in the person given, like a fountain springing up to eternal life. And as I said, that water is the Holy Spirit. So, why are many professing Christians testing again in doubt of their salvation? They are testing in works salvation because they do not know of this water that Christ gives. This water is given freely and it brings about total satisfaction, which means a resting. Satisfaction in that what Christ drew with his hands, because he doesn't have any other implements to use, is water that's going to be drawn by the hands of Christ on the cross and given for salvation, made us complete and accepted before him. That is what the Holy Spirit does in the quenching of the thirst of God's people to tell them that they are complete in Christ, that they have been accepted in the Beloved, and that they should rest. That is the satisfaction that the Holy Spirit brings. He is not being given for people to speak in tongues. He is there to give testimony of our satisfaction in Christ Jesus. Verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. The woman is thinking, what a deal. This is a dream come true. This is piped water right into my house. She is still thinking at the fleshly level, give me this water so that I don't have to be coming here. That's what she said. So that I don't have to come here in the heat of the day because remember this Palestine, this desert area is extremely hot. He's thinking, okay, this guy has some very good project for me. Some engineering that she's gonna, he's going to do at my house and get me this water. Sir, please give me this water. I really like the sound of it. What has happened? Jesus has turned around the conversation. Remember, it is he who came and asked for water. And yet now... It is the woman who is begging Jesus for the water. <laughs> Asking Jesus for his water. Jesus has not yet gotten any water from her. Jesus is not drinking water from this woman. No, that's not the conversation. Jesus wants her to be asking him about the water that he gives. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. Come on, Jesus. What is that anything to do with our conversation? You're supposed to be giving me this water so that I can get some rest and not deal with the gossip from the women that I meet at this well. If you know anything about fetching water from this time, from the well in such communities, this was, as I said, and is mostly done by women. And when they do come here, 
There's a lot of chattering and gossiping about everybody's business. <laughs> so if Jesus would come and save her the hassle of having to deal with the women of the village, especially given her resume, this woman has some bad resume. She's been changing men like socks. And obviously, I would believe that the women in the village don't trust her because of that. So if Jesus would save the hassle from coming to the well, that would be very nice. That would be very good. Say, please give me this water so that I don't have to come here and be dealing with these other sisters. So Jesus issues a second command. Remember, the first command was, give me water to drink, and now you go, call your husband, and come here. Verse 17, the woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have well said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. Jesus, please stop. Where are we going with this conversation? This is supposed to be a water conversation. How did we leap from talking about water to talking about my husband? Stop getting into my business. But the Lord said to her, you surely did speak faithfully. You told the truth that you have had five husbands and the one that you currently have is not your husband. He is a live-in boyfriend. I just want you to know that I know about your personal business. And by this, you should have an idea of my greatness over Jacob. I know about the intimate details of your life. Verse 9. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is a place where one ought to worship. Sister Samaritan was like, not too fast, Jesus. You just changed the subject on me. We were talking about water. And now we're talking about my husband. So I'm going to change the subject to worship. I too am going to change the subject. Yes, I perceive that you are a prophet. I surely see that you are a prophet. And the woman is beginning to see some revelation of the person of Christ. Initially, she said, you are a Jew. So she's moving away from that testimony of Jesus being just a Jew to say, I see, I perceive that you are a prophet greater than our father Jacob. Now Jesus getting into the intimate details of her life, she wants to change the subject to something safe. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, she probably was pointing to it. And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. 
she changes the subject from the many husbands and the living boyfriend to theology. She loves theology. And if she had a Facebook account, she would have been posting a lot of verses, scriptures on a wall. She must bring something to draw Jesus away from her personal details. And what better subject than to debate politics and theology? Throw politics and theology at people. You Jews claim that Jerusalem is the place of worship, is the place of truth. She is throwing the red meat. <laughs> yeah? But our fathers did not worship in Jerusalem. They worshipped here on this mountain, Mount Gerizim. And we also think, because of that, you Jews are theological heretics. But remember that connection between them because of the law. You have localized worship to your own Jewish Jerusalem space and say Jerusalem is where God is found. But our fathers, what do you have to say? You see, if Jesus answers that, then that draws Jesus away from the other stuff that Jesus was about to talk about, her life. And my brothers and sisters, this is what happens when the Lord is after you and is convicted as of our sin and about righteousness. We try to find a way to erase that conviction from our conscience, to give excuses and try to run away from Jesus. We come up with some seemingly good and rational arguments, but if Jesus is after you, there's no amount of changing the subject that would dissuade him. He's going to get you. Because the appointment that Jesus had with you was made in heaven and he is not going back empty-handed. When Jesus comes after one of his own, he always goes back with them. Okay, so we can play all the gymnastics that we want. Yeah, people do play gymnastics. Even with children, they hear the testimony of the gospel. At some point, they think, well, I go to church because the parents draw me to church. Otherwise, I just wanted to stay at home. But over time, the Lord will just be drawing them in and drawing them in. And before they know it, the Jesus who used to be their parents' Jesus is now their own Jesus. <laughs> That's how things work. Okay? Let's keep going. Verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. Jesus comes and says, true worship is not about location. It is not like real estate business, which is about location, location, location. It is not on this mountain, 
nor in Jerusalem. Because there are people who say, oh, we are making a trip to the Holy Land. And when I got there, I felt closer to God. I felt closer to Jesus. No, Jesus denied that. It's just your mind playing tricks on you. True worship, Jesus is going to define it for us. It is not in that Holy Land experience. It is in the truth and by the Spirit. Yes, woman, you worship. Jesus acknowledges her religious activity and says, yes, sister, you do worship. I can see that. But the problem is you know not what. And a lot of people worshiping this morning, the different places gathered, even in the name of Jesus, and saying Jesus this and that, but they know not what. Because they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. That is the real issue that Jesus came to establish. Christ came to establish the righteousness of God for his people. There's no knowing Christ apart from knowing the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God accomplished by Christ is the only message that Christ brought to his people, that he did it and they've been accepted in him. Okay? Verse 23. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So the Lord said, the hour is coming, and now is. And he makes a distinction between the true worshippers from the false worshippers. The true worshippers worship the Father in truth and spirit. That is what Christ has come to establish for all of God's people to grant them access, direct access to the Father, not by way of the temple system, but by Him, by the ripping of the curtain, if you still remember, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the Holy Place, where only the high priest was allowed to go in once a year to make atonement. And Christ is now saying that which only was the prerogative of the high priest. And to do yearly, he has come to open the way. The Hour is coming and now is that he has come to establish that access for us. So it's neither Jerusalem now nor this mountain because this has been opened to all of God's people. Okay. So he says the true worshippers worship the Father. True worship is directed to the Father by way of the truth. And in the writing of John and understanding of Jesus, Christ is the truth. So he gives us the Trinitarian nature of God and of salvation, even worship. Worship the Father through the truth of the Son by the Holy Spirit. Trinitarian. And that means one 
cannot worship God if they do not know Christ and if they deny the truth of the Trinity. Access to God is Trinitarian, but the merits of it is by way of the Son. And worshiping in spirit does not mean speaking in tongues. Okay? It is by the Holy Spirit giving testimony of the truth that is in Christ, because the Holy Spirit was given to testify of Christ. That is the worshiping by the Spirit, giving the truth to our hearts and minds and conviction of the truth of Christ and of our salvation. Verse 25. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. The woman is growing in the knowledge of Christ even as the conversation is ongoing. She is almost coming to the conclusion of the matter given where she started from. She started from just saying a Jew and now she's talking about the Messiah. Okay? She says, okay, Jesus, I heard that. But when the Messiah comes, he will tell us more about this worship thing. He will settle this debate for us forever. So she surely does have some messianic expectations of Christ. She has some expectations of the Messiah. Based on what? Based on the books of the law. Because the Samaritans only held to the five books of the law. And from the books of the law, she understood them to be testifying of the coming of the Messiah. So when we are reading even the law, the books of the law and the prophets, all of them are giving testimony of the Christ. That is the proper way to read them. Okay? We should have expectations of finding Christ in any part of the Bible that we go to, especially the Old Testament, because a lot of people just think that they're just stories. Okay? Verse 26. Jesus said to her, I will speak to you, am he. This, I believe, is the only time in the gospel accounts where Jesus clearly claimed to be the Messiah. He says, I am he, the Messiah, directly. Christ is the Messiah. He is greater than Jacob and gives water that is better than that which is from Jacob's well. But let us work some gospel testimony as we get close to closing the message. And for that, we'll rewind and go back to John 4, verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. Why? Because Jesus was preaching the gospel. The matter of salvation is about marriage. It's pictured as marriage as much as it is also about marriage. 
everyone is married to something. Not just someone. Everyone is married to someone. Even if one is single, they are still married to something in a spiritual sense. And it is either one is married to the law, to the flesh, to sin, to death, to condemnation, to Moses as their husband, or they are married to Christ. Go call your husband. is saying, bring the one to whom you are married in salvation. Bring them to me so that I may see them. Who are you married to? See that the husband is the one that you are supposed to obey. You obey the one that you are married to. And Christ is saying, are you married to the Savior or are you married to your works? If you are married to your works, you are married to Moses. You are married to the law. And many professing Christians, when they are asked to go call their husband, what do they say? They say Moses. They say the law is the rule of life for the redeemed. They say the law is for sanctification. That's the husband that they're calling. They're calling on Moses. And Jesus even said to the Jews, Moses is going to enter into judgment with you because you trust him. You obey Moses, and yet Moses testified of me. He wrote about me. Moses is whom people are obeying. When they tell you to go back to the law, oh, Christ justifies you, but Christ sends you back to Moses. No. When Christ asks you to bring your husband Point back at him. (laughs) Yeah, this from Romans 7, verse 1 to 4. Let's go to Romans 7. Romans 7. Paul says, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. The law has power over someone as long as they live. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. In other words, she is released from that marriage from her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress But if her husband dies, she is free from that law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. Paul is speaking to marriage and how marriages are ended. They are ended by death. So death is what severs your relationship with one marriage and another marriage. Right there, according to Jesus. If the Lord died, then you can't go and call that husband that died your husband. When Jesus comes and asks you about 
your husband. You can't go and talk about the dead husband. Not in the context of the gospel. Here, Jesus is talking spiritual things. And the Holy Spirit says it is adultery to be married to one and then go and be married to another. Even claiming to be married to a dead person. In the gospel sense, it does not work. You have to be married to the one husband. There's only one husband. In the spiritual sense. Paul then says, therefore, verse 4, My brethren, you also have become dead to the law. You have died to that husband of the law. You are dead. There's no relationship between you and the law. But how did that happen? Through the body of Christ, which means through the cross of Christ. The cross of Christ is what severed that relationship that you had with the law. That you may be married to another, which means Christ could not get married to you unless that relationship had been severed. It had to be annulled. Annulled by way of fulfillment. So Christ fulfilled the law, every jot and tittle, and thus he is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So Christ, to him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. So this is what happens in that marriage with Christ. When we have been married to Christ, you bear fruit unto God. Bearing fruit unto God is not works righteousness. It's the fruit of the testimony of righteousness. By faith, we bear fruit by the testimony of Christ. And that won't happen as long as you remain married to Moses. Because if you continue to read in Romans 7, Paul says, when we're still in the flesh, which means married to the law, we bore fruit unto death. This husband, this Moses, this law, it bears fruit unto death. It's only the marriage to Christ that bears fruit unto life. That's what is being said. So the true believer is dead to the law through the death of Christ. To claim then to be under the law just because people don't know what to do with the law is a false gospel. People don't know what to do with the law. We know how to, what to do with the law. We get some flowers and we put them on the grave of the law and say it's dead. Christ is he who was resurrected. He's the one who is alive. Okay? So hear this again. Verse 17. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. By that answer, the Holy Spirit meant to show us that she was not yet married to Christ, though she had, though she had had that many husbands and even then as living boyfriend. Okay? Hear this. Jesus said to her, You have was said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband, in that you spoke truly. You have no husband. That is why you have gone 
through the five. Jesus did not say they died. You have gone through the five and you are not satisfied with them. And now you have a sixth live-in boyfriend. And Jesus is saying, the woman has been seeking satisfaction from these men, but could not find any that could satisfy her. And now she has another man, a very interesting man, in the person of Christ, who knows all her debt. And he seems to be better than the live-in boyfriend because he is promising to give her some water, some living water. And if it is possible, she is willing to pick her things and go with him. If it is possible, she is ready to go with Jesus. <laughs> she has done it before. She is number six now. The man that she has met has really excited her spirit. So much that she, when she goes back to the village, she tells them that I met this man, this interesting man. Guess what? He told me everything about me. She, he told me everything. But see what has happened here. Jesus said five husbands and a living boyfriend. That makes how many men? Six. Six is the number of men that's incomplete. And she is just one more man shy to seven. And the number seven man has showed up in the person of Christ. It's very purposeful. The number seven man has showed up in the person of Christ because Christ is the complete man. Christ is the perfect man. Christ is the man that satisfies. He gives the water that was up to eternal life. In this man, she finds completion and satisfaction. Hear this as we finish John 4, 27. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? Question. What happens when the woman found a real man? She found satisfaction. That's the whole point of this story. She found satisfaction, which Jesus began to preach by way of the water. And now Jesus has given this woman the water. And how do we know that this woman has found satisfaction? First 28, the woman then left her water pot, went her way into the city, and said to the man who stopped there, she left her water pot with Jesus. Her water pot was a daily instrument of labor to fetch water for her needs, but that instrument of her labor has to be left behind with Jesus when one has found the truth. When one has found complete satisfaction, they leave their tools of labor with Jesus. When one 
have the Holy Spirit, they'll find satisfaction and they'll rest in what Jesus said, it is finished. You leave your tools of labor behind with Jesus. Hebrews 4, 8 to 10, for if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has ended his rest has himself also seized from his works as God did from his. Christ was preaching the seizing, the resting of God's people by the woman leaving a water pot with Christ. That is the end of the matter. Weary and heavy laden and leaving our water pots and mugs with Jesus and finding rest. We cannot keep carrying our water pots to try and fetch the water of salvation. Otherwise, we'll be coming every day to the well to fetch from Jacob's well. With that, I say progressive sanctification and the teaching of the law as a rule of life is just telling you to pick up your water pots again from Jesus and seeking to be perfected by the flesh when Jesus has said, come and get some rest. Christ is preaching rest. He is not preaching for us to carry our water pots. <laughs> if you go back to the law, you will never find rest. You will thirst again. You will have to rest in the finished work of Christ. So what happens when one has had a successful date with Jesus, John 4, 29, and that would be our last verse. What happens when one has had a successful date with Jesus? Come, see a man who taught me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Then they went out of the city and came to him. So the woman has found the Messiah, or the Messiah has found the woman. And anyone who has been found of Christ, just as what happened with the man who was demon-possessed, the demoniac, he wanted to come with Jesus, and Jesus said, No, you go and tell your people what God has done for you. And the woman goes back to the village and says, Come, let me show you the man who told me about everything, about myself. So we go and tell others about the man, Christ, who told us everything that we have done. And that means complete conviction of us as sinners. We have no, like some people don't believe they are real complete sinners. They think, I'm just bad some of the times I occasionally make mistakes, but otherwise I'm generally very good. No, that's not our testimony. We talk about the man who came and just put all our debt out in the whole pen and say, I've met the man who told me everything about me. But not only that, I find satisfaction in him. Okay? 
So this Christ, last statement as I close, see what Jesus did not do with the woman. He knew what the woman was up to. And yet, Jesus did not condemn her for her situation. Jesus did not say, oh yeah, I know about that guy. I think you need to pick up your things and go. Because that is not the righteousness. Christ came not to condemn, not his people, but to save them. He did not condemn the woman, just like the woman caught in adultery. He did not condemn her. He did not condemn the Samaritan woman either. And he doesn't condemn us either, in spite of our many sins, in spite of our many live-in boyfriends. There is just a picture of the many things that we do as sinners. It's not specifically talking about your particular relationship with anybody. It's about the very things that we try to find satisfaction from. Okay? So, all who hear and belong to Christ, who come to him, and Christ has come and said, go call your husband. And those who hear the call of Christ, they will leave the order pots to say they had a very successful date with Jesus. Okay? May God bless you with the preaching of his word. Amen. We are done. Let's pray real quick and just thank the Lord for these words. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we bless you. We thank you for the teaching from the book of John about the encounter with the Samaritan woman and that also being a picture of how you've come to every one of us who believe and spoken to us the matter of the water that wells up to eternal life, the water that you've given us, the Holy Spirit. Yes, we had our husbands, but we have found the true husband, the faithful one, the perfect one. And because of him, we have left our water pots behind with him, rejoicing of the man who told us everything about ourselves, not just our sin, but our salvation. Lord, we thank you for this congregation. We thank you for them inviting me again to speak about these matters. May you bless them. May you keep them. Protect them in all things, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.